Okay, Andrew, in the 90s, it felt like every stand-up comedian had their own sitcom, right? Like, it was their name followed by an exclamation mark. Which sitcom did you watch, like, probably with your family? Because I know you're very young. By the skin of my teeth, my two dads. <gasps> no. It stopped April 30th, 1990. So I made it. I made it. Do you know that my grandmother wouldn't let me watch that show because she thought it was about two gay men? <laughs> Um, okay, well, anyway, look, you didn't ask me, but mine was Designing Women because it was the first time I heard a Southern accent on TV that actually made sense. Because the Miss Mississippi people know that a dog belongs in a pound and not in a pageant. Jason, it's very on brand for the two of us to find the two rare exceptions to the comedian sitcom rule, which is it has to be either just their name, Martin, Ellen, Roseanne, or something kind of like show. Drew Carey, show. Jeff Foxworthy, show. You know? I know, and I'm glad you mentioned Roseanne because today on People in the 90s, we'll be talking about our issue from March 29th, 1993, which featured Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold as the terrible two of comedy. It was such a time. What else was happening then, Jason? Take me back. You know, I would I would love to take you back. So also that week in pop culture, Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray was number one at the box office. Television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. Informer by Snow was number one on the billboard charts. I like you bum bum now. Do you know what any of the words are? All I know is informer. I like boom boom down. Yeah. And our guest today, Sherry Shepard, she was making a name for herself back then around comedy clubs and on some of our favorite sitcoms throughout the decade, including Everybody Loves Raymond. The black girl was on all the white shows. I would always tell people, if you see a black girl in the background walking through, that's probably me. I mean, I cannot wait to talk to her. I've interviewed her once before, and it's everything you think it is. I've never interviewed her before, so I'm looking forward to it even more than you are. <laughs> I mean, I won't be yelled at. Anyway, I'm Jason Sheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Jason. What's happening? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. Stand-up comics becoming sitcom stars, because that's what we're talking about today. And I, I think we've got a lot to say about this subject. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, you know, TV was my parent, was my best friend, was my boyfriend, was like everything to me growing up. I mean, I'm I'm sure you had the same experience. Yeah, I was a pop culture. I was going to say slut, but it's not that kind of show. I was uh, a pop culture enthusiast as a child, surprisingly. You can't tell. Are you drinking Chardonnay already? How dare you? I would never drink Chardonnay. We all know I'm a Pinot Grigio slash Savion Blanc girl, depending on who's paying. Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio. Got it. So <laughs> look, look, while this is a 90s podcast, but the story really starts in the 80s because the Cosby show was so huge, right? And so, you know, unfortunately, we have to acknowledge that the Cosby show you know, is, was built around Bill Cosby's stand-up. There's a history of sitcom stars on TV, for sure. Like even before Cosby, there's Bob New. Hart, Red Fox, Sanford and Son, right? But it was Bill Cosby in the 80s who got all of this started when his stand-up routine and his real life merged into one inspiration for a TV show. So we're not going to dwell on him for obvious reasons, but the formula was pretty easy, right? Like a stand-up comic had all these good stories about their life. They'd already been all over the country building an audience. So comedy clubs were like the minor leagues and scouts were there looking for so many sitcom stars like after Bill Cosby. And so all of a sudden the networks were like just like lousy with stand-up comics built with TV shows. And then by the time Roseanne was on our cover, March 29th, 1993, which that was her fifth cover. Can you believe that? That was her fifth? That was her fifth cover. It's like, who is she, Meghan Markle? And so by the time she was on our cover, it was like a boom time for stand-up comics. So like, who else was there, right? There's, uh, help me out here, Jerry Seinfeld. He he played himself. Martin. Martin. Martin Lawrence, which Martin and Gina. Already we have the clear trend that if you were going to have your own sitcom as a comedian. It had to be named after you and preferably just your name or a really fun phrase like, everyone loves Raymond. (laughs) Everybody loves Raymond. Oh, oh, thank you, producer Chris, but it's my show. I can call it whatever I want. (laughs) I had a feeling this day was going to come when she says it's my show. (laughs) I just knew this day was coming. Um, Spoiler alert, I feel like I should come clean right now up front. I did not watch 
everybody <gasps> loves Freeman. So there you go. We'll, I, get, I, we'll talk. Uh, okay, don't get upset. Don't get upset. Okay, I'm going to put a pin in that. Serenity now. To, Blame to my quote, parents. I watched what they watched, and we watched like... Don't tell me home improvement. Tim Allen had a show. Ellen, Jamie Foxx had a show, The Jamie Foxx Show. Margaret Cho, of course, we talked to her recently. She had All-American Girls, so she was not named after her, which is kind of unfair. Ray Romano, Drew Carey, Steve Harvey, Paul Reiser. I mean, Mad About You is one of my favorites uh, beyond. But... Wait, did you mention the Sinbad show? I did not mention Sinbad. <laughs> That was short-lived. For sure. Like, but, So here's the thing. By the 1993-1994 season, which uh, this is when our issue came out, every big network was regularly adding at least like one, if not two, stand-up sitcoms to its schedule every year. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is what skincare lines are to celebrities in 2021 <laughs> is what sitcoms were to stand-up comedians in 1990s. Yeah, for sure. Like sitcoms were like in the nineties, like sitcoms were wellness. Oh, so deep. But I you know what I do want to talk about and I do know about Tell me. Roseanne. Oh my God. Because my family did watch Roseanne and I felt like looking back, none of us actually liked it, but we watched it and I don't really know why. We definitely didn't relate. Not a neurotic Jew to be found. We would never put such a hideous Afghan blanket on our sofa, no matter how poor we were. <laughs> and, you know, their whole thing was being like rude, crude, and happy to raise hell. <laughs> Had to go back to our cover life. I will, you know, without taking offense to that, for where I'm from, right, in Arkansas, we finally saw someone on primetime television who looked and decorated like us, right? Like it was actually really relatable. And by the way, like Roseanne's producers also produced The Cosby Show, right? So, they built an entire series around a working class white family, which really reflected a lot of America at the time. And they really just like, it was her personality. It was her creativity. It was her stand-up. And they packed a lot in to 22 minutes, right? I mean, like it, domestic violence, mental illness, gay family members. Yes. And like the portrayal of like two working and working class parents barely making it paycheck to paycheck with three kids. I mean, it was really... Um, revolutionary at the time. Well, it was revolutionary that they didn't let that blanket come between their marriage. I would assume. I, I'll, I'll give you that for, for sure. But it was definitely like she grabbed a lot of headlines for the show. And then eventually, like, look, as we all know, or I think we all know, her real life was and became even far more outrageous than the TV show, right? I mean, the truth really became much stranger than fiction. Of course, in, in 2018, you know, her show was brought back and it was subsequently canceled and um, retold without her after a racist tweet of hers. But back in the 90s, like Roseanne was really like, you know, breaking all molds, not only for scripted television on TV, but also behind the scenes because she um, she fought for and gained control that was usually only given to uh, men on television. She was also in her personal life kind of crazy, I guess, in a fun way, but definitely in a way that we were not used to our celebrities being right like celebrities have publicists and managers and agents and they withhold a lot from the public to, hmm. you know, maintain some sense of mystery or privacy, or maybe they don't want to let their freak flag fly. She was like, not only am I going to fly it around, I am planting it in your front yard because I hate you and I want you to know I hate you. And that person I'm talking about, you, is Julia <sighs> Louis-Dreyfus. Have you ever read a crazier story in People Magazine than this one? I haven't. And I, it's been a long time since I've been reading a magazine article and I gasped. And then a paragraph later, I gasped again. So set up the scene. It involves a parking place, Tom Arnold, Roseanne Barr, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. <laughs> so just remember, our cover line for them was Roseanne and Tom, the terrible two. Our headline in the magazine was two against the world. And we said, back off. The Arnolds, Hollywood's most pugnacious fun couple, hmm, need their space and they've got the clout to command it. Well, I think we use the word space a little ironically, considering mm, our lead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. ready? I'm just going to do a little reading. You know, I love to do that. Do it, do it. Okay. Julia Louis-Dreyfus didn't know it, but she was about to be Arnoldized. When the actress who plays Elaine on Seinfeld arrived for work March 2nd at CBS Studio Center, where her hit NBC series tapes, she took a space reserved for Tom Arnold. Security guards had waved her away from her usual space and into Tom's because of construction work. They say Tom Arnold was not pleased to pull up in his $210,000 1992 Bentley Turbo and find another car in his space. He left a little note, quote, 
How stupid are you? Move your effing car, you a-hole, exclamation point. Okay. Returning to her car later that day, it was Louise Dreyfus's turn to be upset. She, co-star Jason Alexander, executive producer Larry David, and several other Seinfeld crew members confronted Tom at the end of the afternoon, says Arnold, and demanded to know whether he wrote the note. Yes, I did, Arnold says he told them. Then, according to him, he added, I didn't know whose car it was. I was mad. I'm not mad anymore. I just wanted the car moved. I hope you're not mad anymore. Well, yes, I am, said Louis Dreyfus, according to Arnold. You would think it would end there. There's actually more to come. We continue. March 3rd, she parts in her old space. End of story with the Arnold's? No way. <laughs> that same day, the ever-protective Roseanne 40 soaped two obscenities on Louis Dreyfus's windshield and left a Polaroid snapshot of a man's hairy derriere. <laughs> I'm sure I'd do at least the same for Rosie, Tom says. And then it just spirals. It, 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 so I soaped, I guess she wrote in, I guess like a bar of soap. I don't know. Like, and, and then, and, and by the way, she went on to talk about this on David Letterman. Everything all right with you and the Seinfeld folks? I heard about that little feud about somebody parking in your husband's space. Or... Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that they think it's like hysterical. They deny that the rump was Tom's, which is tattooed. And to prove his point, he dropped his drawers on LA TV station's KTLA's morning news program. They took an almost gleeful satisfaction in describing their parking lot adventure. And Roseanne faxed a letter to Variety columnist Michael Fleming that concluded, the combination of arrogance and ignorance is quite ordinary in this town, but Julia takes the cake. And then Tom says, I think it's funny. So does Rosie. Is he worried about the Seinfelders? Au contraire. We probably gave them a whole episode with this, he says. They can write about a parking space. And later, they, in fact, did have a show about the parking space, but it apparently was not based on this. But here's the deal. Like, in Hollywood, you know, in, in American television, I mean, Roseanne, it was a big, huge moneymaker, right? Like, it started in October of 1988, and then it like was quickly number one. And then for most of its run, like it was like in the top 10 easily, like number four, number five, it was like always super, super popular. And so they had a lot of power because they had a lot of money because they had a lot of ratings and they certainly enjoyed it at the time. Yeah. And so the question was, well, why did people put up with them? <laughs> we call them uh, their Yahoo proclivities. And one agent who did not want to be named, shockingly, said Tom and Roseanne might be eccentric. And there are some in the industry who wonder who let them in. But the fact is people here respect them and they say what they think. And that is admirable, right? Like, I do think Hollywood is known for being really bs right? Mm -hmm. They put it all out there. They were like, this is what we want. This is what we're doing. This is who we are. Take it or leave it. And Hollywood said, I'll take it. Well, the public said, I'll take it, right? It was kind of refreshing in a mess of a way, I guess. Well, it, was, it was completely missed. I mean, like they were winning Emmy Awards. I mean, Roseanne herself won for her performance, as did her co-star Laurie Metcalf. They were nominated for 27 Emmys throughout its first run. But it, she was, she did break the mold in that she was a woman at the top of a show. She was helping write it. She was producing it. It was about her and she commanded and, and you know, dare I say, deserved a lot of that power, at least on set. And like, how, however she used it is, you know, it's, it's up for debate. But she did, you know, pave the way for a lot of female stand-up comics to have their own shows and to have a little bit of, of power on them. So the final two seasons of Roseanne, like she was making a gobsmacking amount of money. She was making $40 million, which made her the second highest paid woman in show business at the time after, of course, Oprah Winfrey. Do you know how many Afghan blankets that is, Jason? I, um, I would say probably, what, 40? At the very <laughs> least, okay. <laughs> So, you know, it would be interesting to talk to Sherry Shepard because I know that Sherry salutes Roseanne a little bit in terms of paving a way for women in power and comedy. Everyone loves Sherry. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Everybody loves Sherry. That's actually the show we should have is Everybody Loves Sherry. I mean, like, I won't go too far into it, but like she's been on Mr. Iglesias on Netflix. You know, she's got this daily show on Dish Nation. And there is a really good documentary called Hysterical about female comics, which is incredible. And she's got her own podcast called Two Funny Mamas with a, a fellow comedian, Kim Whitley. But she really was out there on the comedy circuit in the 90s. And she was also on, on TV in the 90s. She actually got her start in Hollywood as a series regular on a sitcom that was built around a stand-up comic, Ellen Cleghorn, Cleghorn with an exclamation mark, and it lasted one season. So she knows a lot about stand-ups getting their own sitcoms. So she's going to tell us all about it. And we know she knows how to talk because like, you know, I know you loved her on The View. I mean, like that was some good TV when Sherry was on The View. Oh God, I loved The View and she was so good on it. I think she's actually really missing on The View. And what I really want to talk about to her, Andrea, is like, you know, like, look, like, let's be honest, like, you know, television wasn't the most diverse, you know, in the 90s. And I think these are obvious things. But she came up with a really groundbreaking and influential group of Black comics in the 90s, right? Like Dale Hughley and Jamie Foxx. And she was in, in the audition rooms with Niecy Nash, right? And Kim Coles. And also BET was on an entire generation of Black comics. I'm just excited to talk to her. She's just the coolest. Let's get to her. So I've got a very easy fill-in-the-blank question for you to start with. When I think of my life in the 90s, I think of... Wow. When I think of my life in the 90s, I think of ah, freedom, fun. And it was also a lot of, I think of a lot of like pining, wanting to be those girls I saw on TV. Oh, because you started off as your legal secretary. I know there's a, this famous story. You broke into comedy because you saw Andrew Dice Clay one night and you're like, I can do that. Like, what was it about stand-up comedy that you found attractive? I know you growing up, you used humor mm-hmm. to ward off bullies. But what was it about comedy and being a comic that you found so attractive? That was the first time I'd ever been in a comedy club because I was a legal secretary and we, you know, legal secretaries, we go to work at, we go home and then at eight o'clock we go to bed and get up and do it all over again. And I wanted to do something wild and something different. And we decided to go to the comedy store. I just remember being there and it was like being at home and this excitement. And I, I had people laughing around me. And when Andrew Dice Clay got on stage, that's when he was doing hickory dickory dog. Your mouth is on my, you know, and, and um, <laughs> the, the woman in front of me, the women were getting mad at him. And the, the woman in front of me, she turns around and she goes, you could do that. Like you're, you're as funny as him. And it, it just planted this seed of going, gosh, could I do it? And after uh, Clay and, and Eddie Griffin said, just do it scared. Cause I said, how do I do it? And to this day, Eddie Griffin swears I was a groupie that was trying to sleep with him. Cause he was standing next to Andrew Dice Clay. And, um, I just was a shy girl, still a little shy, but, but he said, do a scare, which is my mantra Mm. for life. Yeah. I'm cutting that on a pillow. (laughs) (laughs) But it would stay in the stand up for a second. Like you were around people like you, you were around Jamie Foxx before he was Jamie Foxx, Chelsea Handler before she was Chelsea Handler. Can we go back to those, like, you know, seeing those people before they are who we know they are today? Yeah. It's such a trip. You know, when I look at Jamie or talk to Jamie and I go, look at everything that has happened or Chris Tucker or Dr. Ken, we were all struggling comics and we all were just trying to get on stage and get stage time. And we all auditioned for the same thing. I had three callbacks for In Living Color. Wow. I never knew In Living Color would become what it was. I was just doing my characters and they said, come on back. And I came on back. So, you know, it was like, it was a time of that's all we cared about. That was what we, we just came into stand up. It was our craft and I couldn't take it if I wasn't on stage. I didn't, you know, they repossessed my car so many damn times. I would take the bus to Compton and I'd take the bus to Long Beach and to Orange County. I didn't care. I just needed to get on that stage and I needed to hang around all of the women I, you know, that I had met. And that's not a joke. You, you were that broke. Oh, I was broke. Oh my gosh. I was homeless for a minute, just sleeping on, not, not sleeping on the streets, but I was on people's couches Mm. every other day. I carried myself in a pillowcase and I just slept on couches, but I never stopped doing stand-up. Stand-up was what everybody had to do. I remember meeting Cat Williams when he had nothing, you know, he was, Cat Williams was homeless. He had a son and he would sleep at different places. And, and it was, but it was an exciting time for comics. What was it about the nineties 
stand-up that you can see is was so different than today? What was what was driving that 90s stand-up? You know, today is more political. More people are talking about what is going on now, you know, what their truth is and 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 what they're dealing with. I just feel like back in the 90s, it was all about fun. And not that it's not fun now. It still is a lot of fun. But we talk about issues that are affecting us more. Back then, I just remember Jamie Foxx getting on stage and he do these characters that just would have you cracking up. D.O. Hughley, who's very, very political. If you just follow him on social media, mm-hmm. he is all about what's going on in the world. His his books uh, reflect such. But when D.O. Hughley was up in the 90s, it was just like, (laughs) it it was just, it was fun. It was about what was going on in his life. I don't know if it was, we were a a little bit naive and and not aware. The air now is just a little bit, I talk about things a little bit differently because I'm a mother of a child and I didn't have children back then. I was just trying to get sex. I just, you know. I mean, I still am trying to get sex, but it's not as important. Oh, trust me. I saw you in Good Morning America back back in April, and you were like putting it out there. Like, fix me up. You were asking one of the anchors if he had a cousin. I didn't. I've been, now I, I, I date multiple guys. I've been going on like dates. Like, I'm dating. Wait, wait, hang on. The last time we talked, you said that you were on some dating site and that they kept taking you off because they thought you were impersonating Sherry Shepard. That's Amazing. Have you had any more success? I've had a lot of success. And you know why? Because I'm actually not on the apps. My girlfriend is on Bumble. And so she will see guys and she'll send them to me. She goes, how do you like that? Does he look interesting? And And this is my year saying yes. Like I'm taking the pressure off myself and I say, yes. So I say, yeah, he looks interesting. So what she will do, she's this very gorgeous Puerto Rican girl. We look totally different. She swipes. I don't know how Bumble works. She swipes. He gets back to her and she says, it's not me. (gasps) She catfishes him. (laughs) Yeah. She goes, it's for my girlfriend. She's not on a dating app. And, you know, you look like, and she only goes for the ones that like, they look like they may be successful, like in, um, um, like on my level. And she goes, my friend is, uh, she, she hates the dating apps, but she's successful and she's an actress and a comedian. She's got a 16 year old son. And I go, way to go, Sally. They're going to know it's me. Like, all you got to do is Google all that, but they'll, they're very intrigued and they will say, yes. And then I text them and I say, my friend said that you are someone I should meet. How do you want to do that? So it absolutely works. Wait, hang on. So this is like, you've got a broker. A pimp. (laughs) You want to call her a broker, that's fine. But she's your dating pimp. And I love it. She's a cute, sexy pimp. Andrew, this is a classy show. I know. This is Sherry Shepard. I know. (laughs) I did call her my pimp though. I did. And she vets them. Like there was somebody who put, I'm gainfully employed. And I'm like, I don't know what that mean, girl. If you're employed, you don't need to say gainfully. Exactly. <laughs> you said before that you watched these people on TV and you were like, I want to do that. Who were those women or those people? Oh gosh, just watching. Cause you know, living single. Loved that show. When I would watch that show, I was like, I want to be Sinclair. I want to be, you know, Kim Fields character wanting to be just like about the world and, and, you know, doing things. And Kim Coles was just so funny. I loved her, 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 you know, vivaciousness. Speaking about your sitcom days, what was it like auditioning for those shows? Who did you see at those auditions? Like every time you were like you again? Oh, everybody was there. It would be Niecy Nash. It was Retta, who's on Good Girls. It was Michelle Buteau would be there. All of the women that you see now, Lonnie Love was always there. And it was like, you know, we'd see each other and it was just this big fest because it was it was all love. I was going to ask, were you competitive or more like a friendly sorority? It was like, no, we, we were all competitive. Yes. But we all were so ex- to be in one place at the same time, very frequently, the casting director would come in and go, you guys got to be quiet. Like you're way <laughs> too loud. And we go, Oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> always Garcelle Bouvet was there. It was all of us at these auditions. So it was funny because I was talking to Nisi the other day and she's like, we just used to go. We always would go out for the same auditions. Was there a role that you still look back and you're like, I should have gotten that. That was mine, bitch. Oh my gosh. There was one that I've wanted really well. I lost out to one to Queen Latifah. It was uh, for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Hmm. It was, that was a role, I, but I just started auditioning. I was doing stand up. you know, back then in the nineties, you do stand up, and then an agent would come up to you 
or somebody would come up to you and go, I want to represent you, you know, and you go, Oh, okay. So I didn't know anything about auditioning and to, and I auditioned for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you had to, the, the role, she was listening to music and she was dancing. I did not know that, you know, you can bring a Walkman and suggest that we had Walkmans back then suggest. I actually played music in my ears and I started dancing. So my back was to the casting director. I got music. I can't even hear what the lady's saying. <laughs> I'm just dancing. And you wonder why I didn't get that role? And uh, Latifah got it. The other one was called the First Lady's Detective Agency with Tony Langella, who was a big director. And Anika Noni Rose, oh. Bill Scott, got the wow. lead. And Anika Noni Rose was her secretary. And it was for Jill Scott's character. Uh-huh. And they were from, uh, not Zimbabwe, but Botswana. Yeah. yeah. so, girl, I don't know no Botswana acts. I came and going, hello, how are you doing today? We, we are here to, I don't know what I sounded like, but I got a call back. Anthony Langella called me back. When I tell you, everybody was there. Nisi was there with a big old head wrap. Yvette Nicole Brown, everybody. <laughs> Black actress in Hollywood wanted this role. And and everybody had their own accent. Nisi sounded Puerto Rican. I don't know where she was with her <laughs> accent. But we all auditioned and Tony Langella said, just do improv. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> but I wanted that role so bad. And like, let's, here's the thing. And I just want to, like, let's just say it. Like the, the 90s were not known for diversity, especially on television. Yeah. No. Right. What was the landscape like for you and DC and did you all talk about it? There's just not a lot of black people in TV. Yeah. <laughs> only one of us was going to get it. So we were just like, we might as well have fun. Cause mm-hmm. only one of us is going to get the role. It's not like they're going to come in and have uh, the black woman playing the lead. So we either, you know, we're usually the best friend. We might be the judge. We might be the secretary. And there's only one, one girl they're going to give it to. Now, I, when I see more than one black person on a show, I'm like, this is great. This is amazing because it shows depth. So with that in mind, because you got a lot of roles. And I know you told me one time that you became known as that girl on all the white shows. The black girl was on all the white shows. I would I would always tell people, if you see a black girl in the background walking through, that's probably me. <laughs> Well, I was I was going to say of all of the different shows, and we have like a very long list here. Do you remember what set was the was the most fun? What cast, the set, the vibe? Were you like, oh, I I want to stay here. I'm here. Oh my gosh, I had a great time on Friends. You did. I really did. They were so really really wonderful um, because I I had done Suddenly Susan, and Andrea told me because she was on Suddenly Susan. Andrea Benwald, I think it was. Um, she said my friend Jennifer is over there, and I'm like Jennifer, Jennifer, like Aniston, Jennifer, and she said yes. And so when I went over there, Jen Aniston was the first person that came and welcomed me to the cast. And they were so nice because it was one of my first gigs. They were so wonderful to me. Matt LeBlanc and, and just everybody, David Schwimmer, who I, I told you I ended up working for his father at the law firm when I was broke. I mean, but everybody was really nice. And I had Terry Gar was on that episode. I had an amazing time on Friends. Suddenly Susan was the other one yeah. that I just had a fun time with. So Sherry, you were on Living Single in 1997 and then you were on Friends in 1998. And you're perhaps one of the only people I can think of who was on both shows. Yes. Now, there is this lore out there, and let's just say it, that Friends was a ripoff of of Living Single. Like, let's just say it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's not lore. It was Living Single first. And then and then there was Friends. I I think Friends is great. Um, That was hard. You know, when you have a show set in New York and I've lived in New York for nine years And I always saw diversity all the time. When you walk down the street, you got to be in a bubble not to see the, how many, how inclusive New York city is. It is one of the most inclusive, diverse cities I've ever been to. So that was a little bit hard. I mean, to see a show where not nobody looked like me. And that's what you meant when you sent out that postcard that says friends got some color this week. (laughs) And then I never was asked back. (laughs) <laughs> I, 
I was, (laughs) I was just telling somebody this the other day. It was Mindy Kaling. I was saying this too. I I was very naive. I made a postcard. I was so excited. I was on friends and I made a postcard and it was me on the front with, it was me with a, like an orange sweater. And on the back, it said, friends finally got some color. And I thought it was very tongue in cheek Mm -hmm. and very funny. And I sent it to David Crane and Marta Kaufman and all those folks. And they never asked me to come back to audition. And and I I couldn't figure out why until probably years later that I didn't realize how many people were getting on, on, you know, the producers to make it more inclusive and make it more diverse. So that might have been a little bit of they may not even remember. But it was one of those things I, I, when I did my part of I'm Rhonda and these aren't real, like the crowd went crazy. It was one of their top 10 favorites for a long time. I'm Rhonda and these aren't real. And that's when all of those executive producers came down to the set and was like, we got to have you back. Like you're so amazing. And usually when people say that to me, they have me back. So with me not being called back, I said, Ooh, I might've offended. Maybe that wasn't as cute as I thought it was. Did you ever talk to them? Did, did you ever talk with Marta or David Crane? Or I would, you know, The last time I looked at my phone, I don't have Marta Kaufman's number or David Crane. It's not like I can. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, just, I'm just curious if there's any other feedback. No, we've never run into each other. So I, like we wouldn't run in the same circles because she's a writer and I'm mm-hmm. an actress and a stand-up comic. You know, maybe yeah. one day. And, and if we ever do run into each other, I'll bring that story up and tell her what a great time I had. And did I offend anybody? Because I would have loved to have come back. It was it was a great experience. I was reading uh, an article where you were saying that a lot of times, in, even in New York, in like a show, people would be like, I know you, where do I know you from? And you would end up going through every single credit and they'd be like, no, no, not that, not that. When did you finally feel like you were freaking famous and people knew who you were? I think once I did The View, when I co-hosted The View, people knew my name. Sherry Shepard, what are you over in the grocery store buying toilet paper for? Sherry Shepard. So I get my whole name, Sherry Shepard. So I think mm-hmm. that's when it happened. But still, even still, I was doing stand-up last week and I was sitting down with the other comics and this cute little boy was from Pakistan. He comes and he gets on his knees and he kisses my hand and he says, I'm a rocket scientist. So cute. And he was like, and you, I admire you so much. And I'm like, this little one, my cougar was coming out because he was so cute. And he kissed my hand and he said, and I just was so inspired by you and hidden figures. You set the bar. I was like, that's Octavia Spencer. And he was like, well, then who are you? <laughs> I said, for purposes of me trying to talk to you, I am Octavia Spencer. Well, we, we, oh we, we need both you and Octavia Spencer. I, I, I have to say, we, we, we love you both. I have to ask about one 90s show that was Everybody Loves Raymond. What was that experience like? Because stand-up comics were getting sitcoms and it seemed to be happening all the time. Like Roseanne got a sitcom and Brett Butler. and Yes. Everybody Loves Raymond, that role, Sergeant Judy, was written for Queen Latifah. And mm. so many times if the the original person they wrote it for isn't available, they will audition other people. And I went in and auditioned for it and literally took the bus over to Warner Brothers because I had no car and I auditioned for it. And then they called me back to audition. And that's when I found out it was Queen Latifah. And I said, and Queen Latifah was up for that role. It was living out loud with Holly Hunter. And I said the prayer. I didn't want her to break her leg. I said, Lord, bless her to book this movie because I need this job. I need it bad. I already lost out to her on the Fresh Prince and I need this job. And I went and I booked it. And I remember I was so excited because Ray Romano and Phil Rosenthal took me out to a sushi restaurant. I never even had sushi. I didn't know how to eat it. I had these two wooden things. I was just like, oh my gosh. But it was so exciting hanging with them and actually being on the set and and playing this cop. Bow Wow's a police dog. How do you crack that cone? You don't talk when we on the radio. Now sit back. It was amazing. And then years later, when I was doing the movie Beauty Shop, I told Queen Latifah, because she loved me on Everybody Loves Raymond. She said, that's where I saw you and you were so funny. And I go, well, girl, they wrote that for you. And I told her the story and she said, I got to call them. And I was like, wait, don't mess, wait, what? hey, hey, Dana, <laughs> don't be messing up my kid. 
<laughs> so were there sitcoms with stand-ups that you liked in, in the 90s? What were you watching? What what did you enjoy? Everybody Loves Raymond. I watched it before I got on. That was a funny show with the parents. I love the Jamie Foxx show, which mm-hmm. I was also on. And Steve Harvey just watched that. So I like to watch, I like to watch a lot of the Black shows. I like to support Black people who are on TV because if we don't support, then they don't stay on TV. Oh, gosh. I lo- well, you know, I loved watching Roseanne. I thought that was such a great show. And she was so different from the leads on shows. You had women who were wives and they were just, you know, they were they were these cookie cutter wives. Roseanne just broke the mold, first of all, in looks, mm-hmm. in terms of what she looked like. And then her attitude, like, I don't give a flying ass. It was, and this is the way she raised her kids. But you loved her. This episode is about like, you know, comics getting their own sitcoms and stuff. Like, and there's a big story about her and what she did at the time, like, you know, her demands for money and like an equal billing and that she was she was going to have approval over the script. I mean, they were not going to like screw with with that woman at the time on television. And that was just unheard of. You know what? And this is what I love about Roseanne. We don't give enough credit to her for that. I read her book, her autobiography of what she had to go. She had to fight for all of that. She had to fight with people in wardrobe. I don't have that fight. Money, I have the fight, but script approval, you know, wardrobe, all of that stuff. I don't have to fight like Roseanne fought. So she opened up a door because, you know, when you're the first, you're always going through that kind of stuff. So Sherry, speaking of first, Def Comedy Jam, you know, was a platform that gave a lot of black comics the opportunity to break new ground. Def Comedy Jam, uh, prior to Def Comedy Jam, there was no show that brought together Black comedic talent. You, you know, a lot of these people that were on Def Comedy Jam were, were comics that traveled on the road all over. You never saw them on TV. And what Def Jam did was it brought collectively this community of African-American comics to TV. And we got to have a front row seat. White people got to have a front row seat to what it is that we do. This is where the Bernie Mac show came from, which was one of the shows I lived for. Bernie Mac was close, darn near close to 50 when he started, but he had been out there on the road working that it, that was so comfortable for him being in front of a crowd because he'd been out for decades doing it. We never knew Adele Givens. You got to see Jamie Foxx outside of LA, you get Bill Bellamy. So this was a place where it's like comics got together and they got shows from Def Jam. And then from there, it was in BT Comic View was the big one that everybody watched. It spawned that. And then, yes, from that, you saw Queens of Comedy and Kings of Comedy, because these were people that you saw on TV. And it was Martin. This is where you got you really got to see Martin Lawrence. That was another show that I watched all the time mm-hmm. with the Martin Lawrence show. Yeah. It's, it's, so Martin Lawrence and Chris Rock were the hosts of Def Jam. And you and I just remember that. And this is where you got to see them do their stand up. One more question about that. Does Jamie Foxx really owe you money for a haircut? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. He owes me $50. Oh, absolutely. And he might deny it to this day. He might act like he don't. Oh, he might have a little memory blast. But yes, he does owe me $50 because he was going. I think it was the final callback or something for In Living Color was some audition he was going for. And he didn't have any money. And it was one of those days where his girlfriend had put him out. He used to date this girl. She had big Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> She made him sign a contract that if he made it big, she was going to take like 75% of everything he made, but he needed a place to say, so he signed it. And so he's with this girl. She's very unfortunate looking, but she was with this girl. And every time she came to the comedy club, Ooh, she was jealous of every daggone body. She would come to the comedy club. Jamie would go out the back room. So it was one of them days. She put him out and he didn't have any money. And I loaned him $50 and he never gave it back to me. And if he claims, if you talk to him, he claims, I don't remember. She, you know, you owe me $50, Jamie Foxx. Dying. All right. Well, we're, we're on it. We're, we're, we're going to follow up on that. We're going to get that $50. <laughs> we're going to wrap you up with a little game that we've been playing with people. It's a 90s themed this or that. So uh, this or that and Vogue or TLC. Oh, can I have a thing called why are you going to do this to me? I know. <laughs> That's our new game. Why are you going to do this to me? <laughs> I got to pick why are you going to do this to me? I was going to put one of them against the Spice Girls and I was like, oh, yeah, do that. do that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. It's an easy one. Okay. How about Fabio or Rico Suave? Rico Suave. <laughs> Sherry. Jason loves Fabio. We're now we're, that's our first fight. But I love Fabio. 
Fabio because I read all of the romances. I probably got every book that Fabio was on before I knew it was Fabio. Before you knew it was Fabio. Before I knew it. And I pictured Fabio running. I thought maybe she should change it because I would always picture Fabio running down the beach with his linen uh, pants rolled up to his knees in slow motion with the blonde hair flowing behind his back as he picked up all 167 pounds of me and carried me dead weight across the beach. So I probably should say because I have more fantasies about Fabio. And he started doing butter commercials. I kind of... But who doesn't like butter? Or I can't believe it's not butter. Sherry, that was like an illustrative memory. Like you, you are a writer, ma'am. Yeah. You, that is, you are a writer. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that means a lot to me. Okay. Bob Ross or Bob Saget? Bob Saget. He always had the best father advice. Oh. And he loved his girls. And he was just always trying to date. And it just never worked out just the right way. And it was always an even meeting Bob Saget. There's something nasty behind his ass that I just always uh, he gets real, he gets dirty. Real nasty. And like, and it's 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 funny. Yeah. I'm going to say the first time I saw Bob Saget at the comedy store, I thought I was getting that dad from Full House. Uh, no, I didn't. My mouth was open the whole time. He was so nasty. I said, "Woo! you need like your own Las Vegas review, Bob. <laughs> okay. Susan Powder, Stop the Insanity or Billy Banks, Tybo. Okay. I, I would go to Billy Blanks Tybo over here on Ventura Boulevard all the time, but I love that Suzanne Powder. She was screaming at you. And then she only showed one picture when she was big. It was a picture when she was laying in bed. That was the only picture she ever had when she was big. I think I, we found out she was pregnant there, but she, I would do the nine potatoes. I ordered her whole deck of cards. I ordered everything off of, you know, the little F after the show, the 800 number, it was coming to me every month. I visited one of her daggone clubs and I'm I was like, so total Suzanne. She would, she would scream at you and your self-esteem would be so low, so low. If you didn't eat these nine potatoes wow. and then you were mad at the doctors cause they didn't know nothing. You could eat nine potatoes and lose weight. Didn't know I was going into a diabetic coma eating nine potatoes. I mean, for real. Susan, <laughs> you just you actually just blew our minds. With I was going to say was, you, you won this or that, even though it's not a competition. You, you won the sweepstakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, your must-have blockbuster rental: The Bodyguard or Ghost? That's my friend, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> you know I'm doing Ghost. Okay, it well, is. It, but you know, but Bodyguard though. See. <laughs> So now, let good. me tell you something. You always have a fantasy. Uh, you remember that scene where she threw the scarf in the air? And he, <gasps> yep. He cut and runs. it. Like, yes. And so you always, you always picture, that's the romantic part of us, that there's some man that's going to come in and swoop you up at the last minute and carry you. And you're on a plane and he comes running on the tarmac to get you. So mm-hmm. it's like, buddy, if and you, and you, you always got to start this song. If, can, I can't even sing past that. That, that actually sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah. So. Cause that's all I, I stop at that point. I know the whole song, but I stop right there. <laughs> But that that daggone ghost is funny as all get up. I know she was because you picture that being with a man in that pottery, getting your hands all the way. Because you know the pottery was very phallic. You know, it really was. That whole pottery scene was very sexual, very. And phallic looking, and you know, I, I was all for it. You're the best. Okay, two more. TV uncle, Uncle Phil or Uncle Jesse? <laughs> well, Uncle Jesse, I wanted to sleep with Uncle Jesse. There was no uncle to me. I wanted to go to bed with Uncle Jesse. That hair that were falling his eyes. Uncle Phil was like my daddy. He was so great. He actually played my father in the Sherry show on Lifetime. That's a fun fact. And lastly, Steve Urkel or Kimmy Gibbler? <laughs> Steve Urkel. I did Dancing with the Stars with Urkel. And I have to tell you something fun. You, you know, you're not supposed to try to throw people off their game when they're competing, but you want the mirror ball. And there was one time I was up in the box and Jaleel was trying to do like a lift. His partner was Kim Johnson. And he was trying to do a kind of a lift during practice. And I screamed, Urkel, 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 Urkel. And he tripped and he looked up. He looked up at the box and he was mad. And I went, oh, did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Sherry. That's oh funny. My gosh. Oh my gosh. Was he Urkel. pissed? Yeah, he was like, stop it. Like, he he didn't want you to call him Urkel, but if you call him Stefan, your uh, alter ego. That was like some showgirl sabotage you were throwing around there. Some like I did. Cr- I loved everybody, but Jason, it could only be one winner of the Mirror Ball trophy. I was trying to knock him out. 
You do what you need to do, Sherry. <laughs> you should have seen what I was trying to do with Gladys Knight, boy. I was really trying to get her off. Oh. You can't mess with Gladys Knight. You can't. That's why I voted. I was voted off before she was. And she she was like, and that's what you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, this I can't thank best. you enough. So much fun. So much fun. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you, Sherry. See you guys later. Bye. <laughs> Oh, God, that was so much fun. I love when our guests are just willing to spill. I just think she's so awesome. And I'll just like say it again. I miss her on The View. I, you know, I doubt she wants to go back to that show, but they need her. Oh, my God, do they ever. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Previously on Chasing Fabio. I have continued to email Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey, Fabio's lawyer. So he's just not responding. Are you going to give up? No. Jason, you know what time it is. Mm. It's Chasing Fabio update. I'm going to need to know where we're at. Okay, look, I I don't have anything. I I don't have, I don't have anything. The attorney is like, you know, not getting back to me. Even Donna Mae is not responding to me. Like that, that's it. I don't know what to do next. Jason, I think we just need to recenter here and talk about why this is so important to you, because I want you to really dig deep and like feel the Fabio. What, what is it? Oh, I thought this was important to us. Well, anything that's important to you is important to me, but this is a solo mission. You're not signing my name on the emails, are you? <laughs> we now have a joint email account. No, I, like, in all honesty, like when I think of like 90s and like high school and like, and I think about like ideals of masculinity and I'll, I'll get deep for a second. Like he really does come to mind. Like I was that little you know closeted gay boy reading romance novels, right? And Sweet Valley Highs. Um, and he's always on the cover. And he also looked like, I mean, what I kind of pictured the time to be like what men look like, like men, in, like famous men anyway, like men in Hollywood, right? Like the long hair and the big biceps and like everything is like chins and shoulders and thighs. But also really like he sums up that part of the 90s that's just kind of obscure and campy. He was in a Versace fragrance ad. He was in Bold and the Beautiful a few times. He was, you're right. He was in Roseanne. Yes, and he he was even in an episode of Step by Step. Remember he played a bodyguard in Death Becomes yes. Her? Yes, Jason, you have to get him. He is the 90s. And then lastly, there is an album. He had an album. Really? Called Fabio After Dark. And it included his own poetry on the philosophy of love. Buongiorno. I'm Fabio. And I'm very interested in what makes romance work. I now am thinking, what happens if we do get him? (laughs) I want to share with you my recipe for a perfect evening. What are we going to ask him? Let's, you know what? Let's not get ahead of ourselves right now. I just want you to focus on your dream. Do not lose hope. And just remember, the world is listening, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) You You can do this. Music is the most important thing to set the mood for the night. So Jason, I was reading through this issue, as we do, and normally I just get like a little chuckle out of the ads or like a moment of nostalgia for like an Aussie shampoo that I loved. But this time, I actually want to stop and talk about an ad because there is a one, two, three, four page ad for a movie called Indecent Proposal. I'm, I'm ready because like I, all I saw was like this beautiful, beautiful portrait of Woody Harrelson. Okay, I'm holding it out oh. for you. It says in all lowercase, very, very edgy, a husband, period, with a picture of Woody, like you described, beautiful portrait. And he's looking down. His eyes are closed or he's looking down and it says, I can't pretend nothing ever happened. I just keep seeing her with him in my mind. Do you think he's looking down at his empty wallet? At his empty soul. <laughs> and then you flip the page and you see... A wife, period. After all, it wouldn't mean anything. It's just my body. 
it's not my soul. I mean, how effing amazing did Demi Moore look? I mean, she's got that bob. Now you turn again. Oh, and then. The dashing Robert Redford, and it says, a billionaire, period. I buy people every day. It's naive to think it can't be done. And you're like, what is happening? And his teeth look amazing. And then the last page, page four, it has like an image you could see like money. And it says a husband period, a wife period, a billionaire period, a proposal period. Is it just raining money? Yeah, it's just like money could be on a bed. And there are hundreds. It's worth pointing out. Those are $100 bills, y'all. The thing that's so funny about indecent proposal is, so if I did see it in 1993, the thing that's stuck out to me the most during the movie when I was 13 was, oh my God, will someone ever love me enough to pay a million dollars to sleep with me? No, was to take me shopping and buy me a Terry Mugler dress like that one. I want that for the prom. Look, you and you and I had the same dreams. Right? That's why we get along most of the time. A nice hotel room and a nice dress. I mean, like, I'm yours. All right, Andrea, one last thing. Do you remember probably the coolest couple of the 90s? They're on page 84 of this very issue with Roseanne and Tom on the cover, but honestly, they were a much better couple. Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg. If Roseanne and Tom were still together, I feel like they would sue you for those words. Okay. (laughs) Or you would get a very angry fax or photo on your car, but thank God they're broken up. Oh my God. I would love a fax and a Polaroid of someone's rear end on my car. That would die. But the interesting thing, like it wasn't actually the happiest story back in 1993 in this issue, but it was a report of Ted Danson's 16 year marriage ending. And people were just really mesmerized by their romance. And then they broke up. It happened like so fast. It was like 18 months, right? It's a short romance. And of course, we can't talk about Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg without mentioning the 1993 roast at the Friars Club where Ted was in blackface. And there's a highly controversial roast of Whoopi. She was in attendance for it. She later defended him and she she laughed along with it. And even in 2009, he called it, you know, a, a graceless moment in his life. So what was so interesting about this couple is that on the surface, it seemed like it made sense, right? They were both comedians. Mm. They met while doing the Arsenio Hall show in 1988. Yes. And in 1992, their friendship turned romantic and they started having an affair on the set of Made in America. All very normal Hollywood, except that he was married, right? So Mm. he was married to his second wife and they had to keep the relationship a secret. And then when it came out, of course, it broke up his 16-year marriage, which cost him $30 million, which even Whoa. in 2021 is a lot of money, right? I mean, it's, and also like, I mean, let's just say it, like in 1993, there were not a lot of high-profile interracial couples. And like, look, today, they remain at the top of their game, right? You know, she's moderator on The View, and he's one of our favorite actors ever. I mean, I love The Good Place. I love Cheers. And today he's on Mr. Mayor and married to one of the coolest Arkansans of all time. It should be noted, Mary Steenburgen. I love how you just said her name so flawlessly because when I try and say her last name, it sounds like I'm coughing. Mary Steenbur- Steenburgen. Steenburg- Steen- <laughs> it's Steenburgen or Steenburgen? Steenburgen. Steenburgen. I'll work on it. Well, like just to make it full circle, Arkansas, once there are rumors of them getting together where they really made their, you know, today it's like Instagram official, right? Well, they made things inauguration official because they showed up at the Clinton inauguration balls in 92. Oh my God. As if we could not get any more 90s than we already are, <laughs> you have to drop a Clinton administration inauguration. Mazel tov on that one. <laughs> well, I am from Arkansas. <laughs> I mean, that's so 90s. Well, that was fun, right? That was a really fun one today. I mean, you could say it with a little more feeling. I mean, it's like that. Well, that was fun. I mean, Sherry Shepard, that was fun. Jason, that was really fun today. We had a really fun time. Jason, we had fun. <laughs> I mean, nothing Nothing is more fun than someone telling you to have fun. <laughs> People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs. Executive produced by Kim Rittberg and David Flumenbaum. Edited by Chris Jacobs. Mastered by Erica Wong. And with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs>